This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. To the extent that a party and its party leadership is willing to foreground things that question um, the legitimacy of the electoral system, let's say, um, like the Stop the Steal movement, that is like, in some ways, the nightmare scenario. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Move to Tacoma. My name is Nate, and I'm your host and American teacher in Abu Dhabi at the moment, uh, talking to Michael on air. Uh, today's conversation is about disinformation. And this is a subject we touched on a few times before. Uh, we spoke with David Nywert a few times on the show, and we've talked about disinformation and how it has basically penetrated and gone from the fringe of the right wing in American politics into the mainstream. And this is a conversation I want to have for a host of reasons, uh, both personal and like professional. And so one of the things I love doing is finding an expert who knows more about a topic than me. And and so my guest today is Michael Klein. He's a director of analysis for the Aletheia Group, a think tank, a organization that basically engages in combating disinformation. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing wonderfully. I'm so glad to be here. Okay. So what is this group and what in particular do you do as a, as a director of analysis? Yeah, absolutely. So Aletheia Group is an organization that focuses on identifying um, analyzing and mitigating mis- and disinformation online. Uh, we work with a combination of government clients, uh, but also with companies that need support around this and even individuals that may need support. Um, and the organization was founded when our founder, uh, Lisa, was on the campaign of a senator who was being kind of attacked with mis- and disinformation by both the right and the left. Um, and so she was interested in how can we kind of better understand this and start to combat these issues when we have it at the heart of our democracy. So you did something that I was very, I'm excited you just did. You made a distinction between misinformation and disinformation. Sure. That's something that I came across in university at, at Evergreen about media literacy. Can you distinguish between those two terms and then talk a little bit about which one is plaguing society right now? Because I have thoughts about this, but I, I'm also welcome to the fact I might be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And what I should also say is that kind of I'm here speaking on my own behalf, not on behalf of my employer, but that's kind of important to just note up front, right? Um, For sure. So yeah, so misinformation and disinformation are different and related, right? So misinformation would be information that is false or misleading, um, but is not done with a malicious intent, right? So it might be someone sharing something because they want to help someone out, um, but that information just happens to be wrong. Right. So especially like towards the beginning of coronavirus, people were trying to help each other out by sharing information about what might keep them safe. But there wasn't a lot of clarity around what actually did keep them safe. Right. So people might say, like, masks can help you or masks can't help you. But there wasn't a lot of science around it. And so there wasn't like a right or wrong answer to that at that point. Or there might be wrong information that people are sharing that they just aren't doing intentionally. Right. So that's misinformation. Disinformation would be information that is false or misleading and is done intentionally, right? So it has that nexus of like the content itself 
and also the intention of the actor. Um, and so disinformation is the thing that I'm most focused on. But in order for it to work, you need people to spread misinformation as well, right? Misinformation is a constant challenge, right? People are always sharing things that are false or misleading, whether, you know, on all different topics. Um, but disinformation is, a, is the thing that we really hope to focus on for a couple of different reasons. Um, and I think that one thing that's important to note that I think is different about the way that we think about it is you can think about this as, at a couple of different units of analysis, right? So like you can think about a piece of content being true or false and the spreading of that intentionally or unintentionally. Then you have the, the account that's doing the work, right? You could have true information being shared by a false account, right? By a sock puppet account or by a botnet or something like that. And then you have the coordination component, right? You could have something that is true or partially true being shared by accounts that are real or fake and then being amplified by hundreds of other accounts in a way that's inauthentic, right? And so that's the thing that most concerns me is when there are coordinated efforts to spread information that is false or misleading to target a specific audience. That's the thing that most concerns me. Yeah, and so this is the thing that I'm curious about. And so I guess I'll frame it this way. What percentage of the nonsense that we see online that like is identifiable nonsense is being intentionally spread as a part of a disinformation campaign versus what is just rubes spreading misinformation because rubes do rubish stuff? That is the biggest question in the space. Um, so what I would say is there are a number of different reasons why it's really hard to get an answer to that. One of the reasons is different platforms allow different levels of access to the data that's being shared on them. So some platforms like Twitter provide a lot of access to data. Um, they give you direct API access. You can get as much information as you want, as long as you agree to use it um, in an appropriate way. Um, and all that information is, is shared openly, right? Then you have other platforms, uh, even mainstream platforms like Facebook, where they don't allow API access. It's much more challenging to see the content on those platforms. Um, and there's a lot less transparency. And then you have other platforms where for whatever reason, they are might be more fringe platforms where there's no desire to share whatsoever. And so it's very hard to tell and attribute um, what's coming from real accounts versus fake accounts in many different contexts. And some are intentionally anonymous too, right? So you have message boards that are anonymous on purpose. And so then it's much harder to attribute like who is this coming from um, and what are the intentions behind that person because you can't tie it directly to an individual. I feel like the 800 pound gorilla in the room of this conversation is going to be January 6th. And so I just want the audience to know that for like occupational reasons, he is not allowed to comment on January 6th. You may have heard earlier on when he listed like the clients he works with that one is the government. And so I'm going to leave it there. And so like we're going to not talk about January 6th, but no, that's a part of this conversation for sure, for sure, for sure. But I also don't want guests fired. How's that? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I would say, you know, for, for a number of different reasons, right? Because we work with a lot of different organizations, both government and private. Um, it's just important for us to be careful about what we say and don't say uh, about important events. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. This is going to seem like a weird question, but I think it's useful to kind of center this. What's the earliest recorded example of disinformation? That is such a good question. I am going to grab something for you. Um, if I love it. People could see it online. Um, so my former boss, uh, who has since moved on to a different role, um, wrote this amazing book. It's called True or False. 
Um, and it's a history of fake news. And it's literally what you're looking for. Uh, the first half of the book is literally like a history of mis and disinformation from the beginning of recorded history um, yeah. through present. And then the second half speaks to what you were talking about before, which is how can we help people, especially young people, understand what media manipulation looks like and how to be media literate. Um, and so this book speaks to that. But some examples that she gives go all the way back to, you know, the French Revolution. Um, but we have many earlier examples of that, too, because um, you can think about um, this is one of the things that we work with our clients on is like people have been lying forever uh, and people <laughs> have been and people have been lying on purpose forever. Right. Like to achieve an end um, and to convince people of things that are not true for their own purposes. And so. What's different now in some ways is the mechanisms that are available to do that and the number of people who can speak, right? Like before you had mass media that was controlled by a few different um, organizations, maybe uh, radio stations or television stations or movie studios. But with social media, everybody has the ability to speak and be heard. Um, and there's an ability to coordinate across space and time in a way that there wasn't before. Yeah, this is, I think if I had a time machine, I could go back to the 1990s. There was this whole like the World Wide Web is going to democratize yep. media and communication. And we were like, yay, democratize media. But like yeah. what democratization of media does is, is it brings elites low. And like, you know, David Brooks, and Andrew Sullivan should be brought low, like whatever. But it also brings the rubes up. And so like Bob Handjob all of a sudden now has a bigger platform as the Washington Post for a given tweet. And like, that's where we are right now in society. So. Yeah. And one person who does some really great work on this, and I think kind of speaks a little bit to what you're describing, um, yeah. is Kate Starbird at uh, University of Washington. She does some really great research on the kind of combination of like the collaborative work of disinformation. So both the top down nature of it and the bottom up nature of it, because you have some more conspiratorial things that are kind of coming bottom up. And then you have some people amplifying from the top. And there's this kind of like recursive back and forth between those two things that then co-construct that reality. I think it's useful, actually. Let's go back to the Halcyon days back in the day. Uh, let's imagine that it's like the late 1940s or the early 1950s, sure. and you are a disinformation merchant. Uh, how did you get your wares to the public? Like, how did you spread your nonsense? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I'll cite another person I love. I'm a former teacher, so I cite all different kinds of stuff. Um, so Thomas Ridd wrote a really good book about disinformation. Um, I honestly can't remember the title right now, but his whole book is about kind of the relationship between Russia and Russian disinformation in the United States. Um, and so what would happen then is if you were, let's say the United States government, um, and this is documented, right? You would um, be in West Germany um, and you would be trying to convince people that democracy was a good thing and communism is a bad thing. And so you would, um, create newspapers and those newspapers would print content and that content would get spread to audiences, hopefully on the other side of the iron curtain and Russia would do similar. Right. And so you have these kinds of creation of um, fake media outlets or the use of real media outlets to spread false stories. Um, a lot of times what was done kind of in that time period was also like hack and leak kind of stuff that we see today, but in the older version of it. Right. So a false communique, um, so, oh, we captured this communique from this Russian agency and here it is being shared. Um, I mean, and probably one of the best examples of this would be the protocols of the Elders of Zion, right? So you mm -hmm. have like a kind of archetypical anti-Semitic conspiracy theory um, being spread completely falsely and then kind of spreading like wildfire through a country and then hopping over to the United States and kind of getting the back and forth of these different things, right? So you see um, completely false content 
And sometimes it's of a somewhat believable political nature and other times sure. it's of a completely conspiratorial nature. And so there, there are differences there too. But I feel like those are more like large scale state actors, right? And yeah. that's more like uh, Henry Ford and anti-Semitic conspiracy nonsense. Yep. How about if I'm just like Jimbo the John Bircher, like in the 1950s, how sure. did I get my nonsense out to the community? Yeah, absolutely. So then you had... Um, so you had people like Father Coughlin, right? So you had people who were spreading disinformation on radio um, and would use the platforms of the day to spread their disinformation um, in that way. But it was harder as an individual to do that. Or if you were like, you know, a local clan chapter, you would like print your pamphlets and hand them out or kind of share things that way, right? So there were like, there weren't necessarily ways to amplify in that big way, except on radio. Um, yeah. But then if you can get a story planted in the news, the news would syndicate across. And so if you got a story shared to the Associated Press, it would then kind of filter out to other places too. Yeah, but, but that's, but you're putting your finger on it. The problem now is technology allows scale, right? So like, instead of me being like, well, I am crazy guy on the radio right now, but that's a different conversation, right? So instead of me being the guy in the local media market on the radio, or instead of me at the gun show handing out my pamphlets like a weirdo, um, now that person has a massive platform that is accelerated and allows them to like spread their nonsense and wears everywhere else. And so one of the things I'm curious about is, is like, well, from your take, is there more dense disinformation than there was in the past or are the methods of delivery just more efficient nowadays? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know how to answer that question exact, like head on. I know that there's been some reporting recently and some opinion pieces by, um, I'm trying to remember his name. I think it's Joe Bernstein at Harper's. He wrote like a piece that was attacking the idea of like big disinformation and disinformation as like kind of an, indu an information dis disindustrial complex, sorry, sure. disinformation industrial complex. Um, Hard to say. And making the, making the claim that, um, you know, we have maybe the same amount of disinformation, but we're just much more aware of it. Um, and we're, we're focusing on it more. Um, what I would say is that I think there's like two different components, right? I think that the technology itself provides the scale piece that you described, mm -hmm. but it's not just that, right? The infrastructure of the technology itself amplifies that content. And so it's a combination of like the reach component, but also the centering of the most extreme types of content and the channeling of people to those extreme types of content. Because the thing we're talking about and Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower has been talking about it the last couple of weeks, and it's something that those of us in the field have been talking about for a while now is the idea that content that is more extreme gets more clicks and likes and shares and it gets more advertising revenue, right? Because the business model is to get people's eyeballs on ads um, and to monetize them. And so when that's the goal, you end up with recommendation algorithms that center the most um, engaging content. And in this case, what we've what has been found through research is that that engaging content is content that is either extreme, makes people angry, makes people upset. Um, it doesn't tend to be the happy kitten kind of stuff. Um, sure. And even in reporting that just came out today, Facebook, I believe, was giving five times as much um, weight in the algorithm to people who did like the angry face emoji than to a like. Right. So like even in the way that the algorithm is built, you're seeing these things being amplified. And we've seen also through research that. You know, if you look up um, walking because you want to do exercising, then you'll get pushed to things about jogging and then pushed to things about running and then pushed to things about ultramarathoning, right? So it's not even just like extremism content. It's like literally any topic you pick, you will get hmm. pushed further and further to an extreme because that keeps you engaged. 
But when that content is someone saying that we should build a wall on the southern border, you very quickly end up with white supremacist content, right? Or QAnon content. Help me get my head around the asymmetrical nature of this. Because here's the thing I struggle with, is that the most annoying people on the left are on Twitter. Like the most obscene, the most like profane, the most like... Not not idealistic, but like just like the the biggest jabronis on the left basically tweet. The biggest jabronis on the right occupy seats in the United States House of Representatives. Like there's no Marjorie Taylor Greene equivalent on the political left that exists. There's no whatever what's her name is from Colorado who like lied about her campaign finance, Lauren Boebert on the left. Like those figures on the left can't get traction and get elected. Like people do these false equivalents like, oh, you know, the far left, Bernie Sanders, like Bernie's a freaking nerd. Like Bernie, Bernie's basically a community college professor that like ran for the Senate a long time ago, or actually Congress a long time ago in the Senate. So like, help me understand how we have this asymmetrical thing where disinformation has basically taken up a, like occupies the main stage within the entire left, sorry, the entire right political coalition, uh, while disinformation is like, it's obviously an issue on, on the, on the left, but not to the extent, like, how did we get there? Oof. That is a really thorny one. Um, so what I would say is, is a few things. <laughs> one, because I think it is important to frame a few different pieces of what you were saying. So, sure. um, first, I think one one thing that I did when I first came into thinking about this work was really centering Facebook and Twitter. And I think that they are very important to understand because of their scale and because of their impact um, intellectually. But I think one thing that we wouldn't want to forget is that there are these other platforms that actually end up seeding many of the things that end up on those platforms um, and create the space for people with more extreme beliefs to build coalitions, build community. Um, and then end up in, in positions of power. I think that's important to note too, right? So you have these alternative platforms that have popped up. There are any number of them. You have, you know, Parler, Gab, um, alternative video platforms to YouTube, like Rumble and BitChute, um, where when people act on the social platforms that are more mainstream and they get um, their content moderated or they get deplatformed, they move to these other platforms, right? And so what happens then is you end up with with a smaller and smaller community of people talking with only people who uh, sound like them and often look like them. Um, and then those ideas end up not necessarily being seen by a lot of the other people on the other platforms. And so it's easy for things to become more and more extreme and then find their way back onto those platforms, either in coordinated ways or in ways that are just kind of incidental. So that's like one thing I'd want to say about kind of like the ecosystem, right? Because there isn't necessarily right now kind of a left-wing version of that ecosystem. There's not like an alternative to Twitter for the left. There's not like an alternative to YouTube for the left. Um, And so that conversation happens more in the open on these larger platforms. So that's one piece I would say. Um, The other thing is that I would say like since at least 2016, maybe 2015, you've had people at the top of the government um, platforming views that were outside of the mainstream um, and sometimes avowedly racist or sexist or transphobic or any number of those things. Um, And then I think one other piece that's unspoken, so you kind of have people at the top doing this, you have the networks themselves that are creating the space for this. And then I think another piece is that there's a lot of money behind it. Um, I think on the right, what sometimes looks like grassroots is sometimes astroturfed. Right. And so there are things that are 
And you saw this with both the Tea Party movement, and now you see it also with kind of the Stop the Steal movement. And so there are different pieces of this, and you even see it with CRT in the schools, right? So I think that you see these different pieces where there are networks of individuals, um, networks of foundations, and organizations that are willing to kind of support and fund a certain ideology um, to help build the kind of technology infrastructure to forward that. Um, to help push lawsuits that will forward that. And so we see, I think that's one of the things that has created the space for that as well, right? So I think those three pieces are, are kind of some of what I think of, but I don't think that's a definitive answer to the question. No, no, that's a great starting point for an answer. And let's pick this up after the break. So we'll be back. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling, and you can rest easy knowing you're gonna get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you wanna learn more, visit movetacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. And we are back. I want to honestly and sincerely thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We are a network of shows across the spectrum, uh, telling stories and giving points of view and elevating voices you won't hear elsewhere. Uh, this is a labor of love for us, and we enjoy doing these shows, and we would love your support. A membership to Channel 253 costs $4 a month or $40 a year. And what that gets you is access to our member-only events, which I promise you are coming back like vaccinations, COVID, that's coming back. Also, access to Doug's podcast, Off the Record, which is conversations with show hosts that are too spicy for the normal air. And honestly, the best utility right now is the member Slack. Uh, the member Slack is jumping right now. There's conversations happening right now about voter recommendations, how folks are going to vote. Uh, Folks are reporting signs for the local elections that seem to be illegal. And honestly, the travel section is really, really popping. Uh, I used it to help plan my trip to Rome that I got back from. Lots of great information. Like the Slack is worth $4 a month on its own. And so with that said, if you like what you're hearing right now, become a member of Channel 253. It is $4 a month or $40 a year. And by the way, I pay for it myself because I believe in it. All right, Michael, let's, let's nerd out. Something that you said pricked my ear and it reminded me of a book I read about a year ago by Dale Barron called It Came From Something Awful. And essentially what I took away from that book is, is that the disinformation wars that we're seeing happening are absolutely, absolutely real. And I'll, I'll lay it out like this. When folks like who are listening to the show, when your mom, your grandma, your auntie is watching the NBC news or Fox news or like whatever, even, even, even PBS, they don't understand the extent to which the discourse on, on Twitter is shaping that news. 
But when you and I are looking at Twitter, we don't understand the extent to which the discourse on Twitter is being shaped by these alternative platforms you're talking about, like Gab, like Parler, like 4chan, and uh, on the left, honestly, like Tumblr. And so does that pyramid of like discourse and like hidden iceberg make sense to you and resonate with you, Michael? Yeah. So, so what I would say is, and one of the things that we talk about with a lot of our clients is by the time something gets to Facebook or Twitter, it's often too late to stop its spread completely, right? Because huh. once something has gotten there and been platformed in those places, it means that it's gotten to a place where it can be amplified by any number of people. Um, and it's probably made its way through a few different things. We've seen everything from, I would say, like, so if you think about disinformation, it breaks down a few different ways, right? So you have like the coordination component, right? Because oftentimes if you want this to, to work out well, if you're a disinformation actor, you need a place that is often end-to-end encrypted or at least out of sight for people to be able to coordinate the effort that they're about to undertake together and to amplify it throughout the time, right? Then you have where the content's going to be held, right? Because everything needs to point back to a website usually of some kind, whether it's to make money on it, whether it's to point people to a fake or junk news site. And then once you have that content, then it gets shared either to a fringe platform or a mainstream platform. And then the coordination helps it to then amplify, right? So like you have people creating fake accounts, you have people creating um, hashtags and things like that. And the content of of the different posts that they're going to make, they're grabbing the articles um, sometimes from a website that they control, and then they're sharing it to social media and then coordinating with other people to amplify that information so that it gets in front of people. So it gets to the top of Reddit. So it gets to trending on Twitter. So that gets in front of people, right? Um, But oftentimes, like you're saying, you also see these other platforms like 4chan or now 8kun, um, where things like, you know, QAnon have kind of moved from 4chan to 8kun and then kind of been bred and built from there. Um, And then that then drives the conversation on other platforms as well. And I would say, again, it's, I tend to think of these things recursively. I like to think of like the back and forth dance of these things, because sometimes let's say someone like Ron Watkins, you know, someone who runs the site, Acoon, someone who has been talked about as potentially being Q, post something on Twitter. Then people on the Q message boards on Acoon start digging and you can see hundreds of them posting, right? Over and over and over again, and kind of pulling this content together and then sharing it back to Twitter. And then there's kind of a back and forth between these things, right? Because one place is better for kind of organizing an argument or kind of pulling ideas together if you're a small community. The other is a place where you want to then share it out to, like you said, the normies. <laughs> it's always weird hearing myself quoted back, the normies. Uh, something that I'm struggling to kind of process, and I want to just kind of make sure that I have this right here is, is that, so you kind of tease the idea that you're not sure if there's more disinformation now than there used to be, or are we just more aware of it? But a, a third possibility is, am I just too online? Like, like <laughs> is, is, right? Is Joe and Jane Citizen either A, not aware how much disinformation they, there is, or is Joe and Jane Citizen okay with disinformation? Is this a problem of folks who are just too online? Yeah, I think I'll probably do the John Dewey both hands, not either or. Um, <laughs> So I think that I think that it's a little bit of both. I do think that there, so I think, and there have been studies on this, right? Like there's more content produced in a day than there was a hundred years ago in the course of like hundreds of years, right? Just in terms of like, you know, books being published, articles, like we have more hours produced on YouTube than could ever be watched, right? Like there's just no, there's no way to even conceptualize that kind of scale. Um, 
so I think it is true. Yes, there's more information, which means likely there's more disinformation being produced as well, right? Just like the scale is much bigger. But also, like we talked about, people are much more online, right? Like before, if people were, you know, I don't know, farming or even just doing their jobs, they'd read the newspaper maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, a little bit of each day, uh, maybe listen to the radio on their way to work or something like that. But now you can be engaging with that stuff every minute of every day if you want to. Um, and it's really addictive and it keeps drawing you back in. And so I think that it's likely that both the amount of content people are consuming is much more, that that content is likely has more disinformation than it used to, and that that disinformation is being centered um, by the algorithms and by platforms and by the individuals posting it more than previously as well. So I think all of those are probably true. I do think that there's a legitimate question about when people talk about disinformation, sometimes what they're doing is like using a catch-all for people are saying mean things on the internet, right? Like it's important to define our terms too. So when we say disinformation, it can't just be like a thing someone who I dislike said online, right? It has to be like demonstrably false or it has to be said by someone who is demonstrably not a real person or not who they say they are. So I think that like, it's easy to fall into that trap too of like, you know, it's the next step in corporate PR where you're like, oh, that's disinformation. like like President Trump was able to turn around fake news, right? Like fake news was a useful descriptor until it became turned on the news itself. And then trying to say, like delegitimize real news as fake news, right? So I think that there's a danger there too, as we study this stuff, if we're not precise in our in our language and we're not precise in the way that we think about these ideas, that it can kind of have creep that makes it difficult to actually kind of make a difference. I'm going to steer this car in two different directions, and I'm going to warn you now I'm doing some steering here. Good. So the United States does not exist in a bubble. And so who are some peer countries who have a handle on this and whose like political system is not being uh, drowned in disinformation? And how are they navigating the situation that they're experiencing that? Okay. So I will start by saying I am... If I'm an expert in anything, it would be in a U.S. context. And so I want to sure. just like foreground that I'm not an expert in international disinformation in that way. That said- Listener, we're spitballing. We're spitballing. Yep. So just like, yeah. That said, let me take this in two different directions. One, let me tell you like who known disinformation state actors are, because I think that's useful to know, but also what countries are doing a good job against those, because I think there's a back and forth there, right? Yeah. So known disinformation actors that we're very comfortable being able to talk about. Russia <laughs> targets things like U.S. elections, targets things like its neighbor nations um, and their democratic institutions. When they do so, they tend to do so focusing on essentially the creation of chaos, right? Like they're just trying to make you not believe anything, right? Because when you're attacking a democracy, you need a shared sense of values and a shared understanding of like what truth is. And if you want to destroy that, you need to attack that sense that there can be truth, right? So that's kind of like Russia's MO. Iran, somewhat similar. We saw them like do the Proud Boys thing, right? You remember the email that got sent um, pretending to be the Proud Boys to um, Americans and it was actually Iran, right? Yeah, um, as much Florida, as yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the third nation that we tend to think about is China. They tend to be much more strategic about the way that they do their disinformation. It tends to be much more about like the promotion of Chinese narratives about kind of China doing good in the world, right? Um, so those are three countries that do that. When we think about who's countering these things, well, I would say there are a number of um, former Soviet states that have had to mm. focus on this because sure. it has been so core to their 
livelihood, like their ability to exist. Um, and so I think like countries like Latvia, Lithuania um, have kind of started to stand up both fact-checking operations to address this kind of thing, but also essentially like trying to build civilian cores, right? Like trying to build groups of people that understand like this is a national security threat. And also this is something that like our young people need to know how to understand because like it's going to completely overwhelm their ability to understand their reality, right? If if a larger country can just pump news in that is fake um, or amplify things that aren't true, it makes it really difficult to have a functioning democracy. And the US can potentially stand up against that um, but when you're a small country next door to a big neighbor who used to be the imperial power, it's more challenging. So you you predicted where I was going to steer the car to. So the next place I want to talk about is what does it look like? And this is like a John Stewart, like early 2000ism, but like, what does it look like in a post-truth state? And I, I think about this in particular because like I just returned from Italy and I'm thinking a lot about the Berlusconi government and the fact that like when... At one point in the mid-2000s, when AC Milan was playing against Juventus, you basically had like the prime minister's team, who was a oligarch essentially, versus the richest man in the country's team, who was an oligarch. And then the prime minister owned an entire network. Uh, it's like the show uh, Succession like happening at, at the state level. And so like how, what is the nightmare scenario with the pathogen of disinformation in a society and a culture? I don't want to go to that dystopian place because I kind of, I live there sometimes on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, no, what I would say is I think, let me start with maybe a way of framing it and then I can dive into that dystopian world. Um, yeah. I think that there are kind of two ways to think about this. You have like a supply side and the demand side, right? And so when we think about solutions to these problems, we need to think about both of those. So on the supply side, what we're talking about is like what interventions might be taken to address the fact that this content even exists in the first place or it gets amplified or any of those number of things, right? And so there are regulatory things that we could do. There are takedown requests that could be given to platforms for accounts that are known to be disinformation accounts because many platforms, at least like Facebook and Twitter, have community standards. So they're supposed to take down those accounts. So if we know that they're fake, let's point people to the right places to get them taken down. Um, so that's like a supply side piece. And then there's the demand side, which is like, people are asking for this, right? Like this is something that is being constantly like pushed yeah. to people. Um, and so on that side, I think there's a couple different pieces. One is like the cop-out answer is always education, right? Um, but I think that there is an important place to talk about the ways in which civic engagement and education, not just for kids, because I think that this is a problem well beyond just kids. And oftentimes we're seeing older people who are the ones who are kind of falling down these rabbit holes, especially around QAnon and things like that. We need to provide opportunities for them, whether it's, you know, a network of a million librarians and you go to your local library and like your librarian helps you sort through information like they used to, right? Like these people are great at that, right? Like that's their job. Um, but I think like those are the two sides, I think is like the supply side and the demand side. I think that the, I mean, the nightmare scenario for me is that you have, and pieces of this happened, right? You have a concerted effort by a party or both parties to basically destroy the concept that truth exists and that we can share a ground truth with each other. Because for a democracy to function, you need to believe that there is a shared set of values and a shared set of things that we can understand to make an informed decision about something. 
if that's even just like a local school board election or if that's a national election for president. And so to the extent that a party and its party leadership is willing to foreground things that question um, the legitimacy of the electoral system, let's say, um, like the Stop the Steal movement, that is like in some ways the nightmare scenario, right? You have like a movement that is aimed at saying like the election is illegitimate. Um, we have things that we can't show you that are going to prove that it's illegitimate. Um, it gets amplified by a whole bunch of different groups that previously were not associated with one another. It's during a pandemic, right? So during the pandemic, we saw a combination of people that were previously kind of separate groups come together. So you had like the anti-vax community, you had the kind of like right-wing extremist community, you know, you're like both keepers, three percenters, even some proud boys. You had um, other organizations that were pushing against the lockdown and kind of more libertarian leaning groups, um, all kind of amass and come together and start to overlap with what I've seen described, and I don't mean to call it dismissively, as like mommy blogs, right? Like blogs where it's about like oh, they wild. children like, safe. They wild, like to be clear, like the mom blogs are wild, like like heard and nodded to, yes. Yeah, and then you also see this idea of, of QAnon, right? And so like that kind of pulls all of these things together, right? And so you saw like previously separate communities all starting to coalesce, and then that led into the kind of Stop the Steal movement. Right. And so like when you have that groundswell of bottom up support, as well as people at the top saying this is happening and potentially as we're starting to see that there were, you know, people trying to agitate for the overthrow of the government like that's that is kind of the nightmare scenario. I something that I've been thinking about is how my view on this has changed over the last 24 months. Yep. And so if we were having this conversation pre-COVID, I would have talked and asked you a lot about YouTube algorithms yeah. and like YouTube autoplay and how yep. you get fed, you get fed, you get fed. But it feels to me, and maybe it's just marketing, that YouTube has cleaned up their act on a lot of this to an extent. Some. Some nodding um, there. Some. Yeah. Some. Okay. So, yeah. So what I would say there, and this is another place where I, I just... I tend to cite a lot of other people, but the Lawfare podcast is really great on this. They have a whole kind of like series on disinformation called the Arbiters of Truth. And one of the things that Evelyn Dweck talks about the most um, is how YouTube is able to escape scrutiny for the most part because mm. they don't make their stuff as public as Twitter and Facebook. And people don't tend to think about them as a site of disinformation. But if we're talking about video, that's mostly where it's shared or that's mostly where it's housed, right? Yeah. Um, that said, I think there has been work on the algorithm because um, I've seen less disinformation being pushed forward. However, as part of some projects that I've done, I have seen pretty quickly, uh, within a couple of clicks, you end up in some very strange places. Um, even looking at some very kind of, let's call them basic research topics. Yeah. So again, two years ago, I would have talked about Facebook, sorry, about, about YouTube. Today, it seems like Facebook is ground zero. And I say this as somebody who's not on the platform and I'm not on Instagram and I'd like to be off WhatsApp, but you cannot be overseas and not be on WhatsApp. Like it's a necessity. And yeah. by the way, the disinformation and forwards and WhatsApp that I've been reading about overseas are absolutely wild. So whatever Facebook has to do with like, with like Facebook, big blue, like the disinformation circulating and messages on WhatsApp and particularly in India are a whole different episode of conversation. Yeah. I guess the question there though is, is I think that we all have our head around, if you're listening to this show, that like Facebook bad, right? Like Facebook bad. 
to what extent and how large of a role is Facebook playing in driving what's happening in disinformation and misinformation on the political right? And then also like in, in the political left in the U.S. as well. So like, like how much of this problem is really a Facebook problem? Yeah. So again, it's kind of hard to tell, right? Because Twitter, you can see what's going on. Facebook, you can't. And that's intentional on their part. Um, that's why I think that the Facebook files and then the Facebook papers, um, we're still in early days with that right now, right? I mean, I think yeah. that this is going to be an incredible opportunity to understand the inner workings of the organization from whistleblowers, because I think those are the people that you need to be hearing from, because the company itself does not seem to share meaningful information. They've even hidden information that was relevant to researchers that they provided access to. Um, so I think that like, it's, it's almost impossible to say right now, but I think we'll know a lot more soon. What I would say is that as I think about this, I, I had somewhat of a platform-centric view as well um, a couple of years ago. What I would say now that is most interesting and scary to me is that, and I think you can take an example, maybe I'll take a step back. So I think platform coordination with each other is the most important thing that could happen um, sure. and oversight of that coordination, right? Because I sure. think that like you have Facebook, which has a tremendous amount of money and could invest as much money as it wants into content moderation and finding bad content and all that kind of stuff. Twitter has less money and a smaller team to do that, but is trying to do that. You have a lot of smaller platforms that have no money to do that. And so what happened in the case of child sexual abuse material, CSAM, um, is there's a database run by NICMIC, the national organization that basically protects children, right? And they have a database of like all of the images that have previously been shared online. And there have been coordination between all of the platforms to basically run everything as it's uploaded through that database, right? So we know that if there is content that has child sexual abuse material, it is not gonna go up on the platform unless it's new content they haven't seen before, right? There needs to be that level of coordination between the platforms on things like fake accounts, disinformation, and things like that, right? Um, and, and I think it's easier to talk about, sadly, um, when we're talking about child sexual abuse, because everyone thinks that's wrong, of course, which right. it is. Um, but it's harder to do that when we're talking about disinformation because it feels more political, even though some of it is just technical. Some of it is like, what is the IP address of this account? What is the name that's being used? Do they have associated accounts? If you match their email address with other platforms, are they opening accounts on every single platform and sharing this stuff, right? So, and I think there is some coordination happening. We know that, but I think that to the extent possible, like that is the kind of information sharing that would be helpful. I realize that there are civil liberties concerns there too, and I don't, I don't want to downplay those. But I yeah. think that if you're really trying to stop this stuff, we need to both have that coordination and also have the technology built to be used by any platform that wants to use it. The, but the problem with that, and so everything you're saying I agree with, is, is that the misinformation, disinformation crazies occupy center stage in one of the major political parties. And so like, if <laughs> you're trying to say yep. we're going to filter this out, then like you're talking about not, not communicating or not having on social media like a third of the Republican caucus in the U.S. Congress and a chunk of the Washington State legislature. Sure, sure, sure. And what so and I think there what you're talking about, and this is something that we think about a lot, right, is yeah. what is protected speech, right? And so like, the creation of multiple fake accounts is not protected speech, right? Like, fake mm. people can't speak. Um, and, <laughs> right, um, or like the inauthentic amplification of content, or the sharing of content that is violative of these platforms. Um, also, an important distinction to make, which I think 
we're all on board with is like the First Amendment only applies to government. The First Amendment does not apply to platforms. Platforms can take right. down whatever they want to. Um, and so that is more of a kind of like, do they have the political will to make that choice um, question than like a legal question? Um, but then there also is the question of like, what legislation would be helpful from government? I'm not an expert on that stuff, but I do think more transparency in what the algorithms look like and more transparency into what content is being posted would be super helpful. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like that would um, run up against some really big challenges right away. Yeah. Uh, I think my exit question here, how do you personally respond when you see a loved one or somebody who you care about or someone you have a relationship with sharing mis or disinformation? Yeah, that's a really tough one. Um, so point of privilege, um, I come from a family that leans pretty far left and the sharing of stuff on social media tends to be pretty tame and thoughtful. That said, there are people in my sphere who are of a different variety. Um, And so what I actually find a lot is I have friends sending me screenshots of things that their relatives are posting to say like, what should I do about this? Or how do I address this? Um, And I think like one of the saddest things is like, you know, we have, I have a friend who just let me know that one of their aunts passed because of COVID and they were an anti-mask, anti-vax person, and they just didn't protect themselves, right? And I think this this happens all the time. And I think my personal perspective would be a few different things. One, trying to understand where the person comes from, right? Like what's underlying this? Because I think that we can all get on board with like, we're skeptical of different organizations, government, whatever, right? So if that's like what's underlying this concern, like, cool, like let's find a different set of sources that will help you understand that this thing is, is legitimate. Um, and then I think there's the kind of uncovering of the fake accounts piece of it, right? Like if this is being shared by not a real person, that becomes pretty easy. Um, or if I can point back to like, oh, actually like this is a known disinformation campaign from like Russia. Like, <laughs> do you really want to be pushing that? That's another way to take it. But I think that I'm not an expert in this, but I do think that helping people with some really basic kinds of techniques, like let's say reverse image search, right? Like, can you take the picture from the profile, do a reverse image search and see that, oh, this actually is not this person. This is a stock photo. So this is actually not a real account or something like that. And it's most, most basic, right? Or um, looking at archive.org to see like, hey, what did this website look like five years ago? Like, is that something that we understand has changed over time? Um, I realize that that's not like a quick and pithy answer, but I think sure. there are people who are very well um, situated to answer that question. I would say like, um, what's his name? I forget his first name. His last name is Caulfield. He's Holden um, on Twitter, um, which is funny and awesome as an English teacher. Um, um, but yeah, he, he his stuff is great. He wrote like a whole handbook on like how to identify media manipulation for kids. And I used it with my students when I was a teacher. And that kind of stuff, I think, is the most powerful, right? Like taking a look at these posts that go viral. And I think the Stanford History Education Group does the best job of that. Um, Sheg, I don't know if you ever looked at their stuff online. If you're a, a history teacher, you remember like DBQs, right? Document-based questions. Um, I remember them uh, this week, yes. Teaching them, yeah. So, so they've made basically DBQs for social media, right? So they basically extended this to say like, how do we think like a historian when we look at the internet? Um, and when we look at the internet, when we look at a Facebook post, how do we do sourcing? right? How do we make sense of these accounts in the same way that we would for a document that we see from history? And I think that that kind of thinking is the kind of thinking that if we engender, people will be able to kind of engage more meaningfully with that kind of content. 
right? So a tag on to the exit question, because I'm a liar. Uh, what is the absolute worst way to respond or which responses have been the least effective in your experience? Uh, yeah, I think the like dancing on the grave response, you know, I mean, like yeah. not to, I mean, not to get too morbid, but I think that like, while I, I think there's <laughs> a diversity of strategies and tactics is always very helpful. <laughs> however, so cautious. However, um, I think that I am personally very, um, kind of like turned off from the people who are like, ha ha ha, this person was like anti-COVID vaccine and now they're dead, right? Like, I think that is like not productive, um, especially in this particular context. And I think that to the extent that we can find people within communities that are trusted, who are similar to the person that we're trying to talk to and have them speak to the concerns in a meaningful and, and kind of empathic way, um, I think that that's the best way to get there. I do think that there are people who are just like, bad actors, like the Proud Boys showing up at CRT meetings, uh, like uh, school board meetings, that like, you're not gonna convince otherwise, right? Like that's not, that is not the tactic that works in that context. But if we're talking about someone who just sees a piece of disinformation content, believes it and is starting to like act upon or go down that rabbit hole, I think that kind of unearthing what's leading them to that place and finding a trusted person to talk to them about it is the best way to get there. That's a great place to end it. All right. So if people want to follow you on the socials or follow your work, where should they look? Uh, yeah. So on Twitter, I am at Michael F. Klein. And that's Klein like Calvin Klein. Um, and yeah, that's where I am on, on the socials. I think that's the best place to find me. All right, bet. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on. I love learning from people and I learned a lot in this conversation. Uh, I love how you answered the what not to do because I'll be honest, I've been guilty of posting a blank effed around and found out meme now and now and again and i need to remember those are for internal consumption and not for like persuasion so i appreciate it same same have totally done it myself and so i'm speaking from a position of having having reflected on that experience and been like yeah let's not do that next time yeah. as my friend kenny says we're all on a journey <laughs> wakanda forever y'all wash your hands be vaccinated wear a mask in enclosed spaces and convict the police that killed manuel ellis Go Sounders. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your hands. Wear a vaccine. No, not wear a vaccine. <laughs> As Doug just reaches over to write the blooper down. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.